As the world is writing a new story of global kinship, Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Reverend Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. Welcome to the Postmodern Missionary Podcast Season 2. I'm super excited to be coming back to you with, I think, some really rich conversations. And I wanted to tell you about this first episode of Season 2 because I think it's an interesting one. The point of this podcast is that we would kind of figure out what we mean by postmodern and what we mean by postcolonial and what, what it what it means to be a missionary in a new day, we would figure that out together and along the way. And um, this was my very first interview um, with my friend uh, Kristen Bacher. She was kind of my guinea pig. And it's been a year and a half since we had this conversation. Um, And for some reason, it just didn't feel right in the lineup Uh, of those first like 10 conversations that I put out in season one. And so I didn't put it out. Well, as I came back to this conversation, I thought we would start with it. And then I was listening to it and I started to feel uncomfortable because the truth is some of the line of questioning that I was asking that I felt was completely appropriate a year and a half ago after having lived here now two and a half years in Sierra Leone, I started to recognize that no, maybe it wasn't as appropriate. My friend Kristen lived in the slums for two, three years, something like that in Sierra Leone. And I felt like it would be an interesting conversation for people to learn how people in the slums live. I mean, some of the details of that. And as I was listening back, I started to wonder, why am I uncomfortable with this? (laughs) Why does this feel kind of icky in my stomach? Um, And in fact, as I was editing, I don't do too much editing, but um, generally I take out all of my ums because there are a lot of them. As I was editing, I was thinking, um, this feels nosy and inappropriate. And in fact, I started to mark where where I was uncomfortable and I named them nosy poverty questions. (laughs) And what I've come to learn, and I feel like there's more to say here, but honestly, I I feel paralyzed right now to say all the things. So I'm just going to say what I have come to learn now, and then maybe we can build on that as we go. Um, But what I've come to learn, there's only one thing, and that is we don't deserve everyone's story. Like I'm coming to learn that you have to earn the right to hear people's stories just in the same way that you have to earn the right to be heard. And it felt to me like I was skipping over um, that earning bit. And so what I'm learning is that maybe I felt a right to hear um, about the way people quote people in poverty live. And I thought it would be edifying and helpful and help people to understand and open people's eyes. But what I'm realizing is that maybe I was just missing the relationship piece. And um, divorce from relationship, it feels nosy and inappropriate now to me. Like people don't have to tell me how they live just because I'm curious. People don't have to give me entree into their lives just because I want to know. And I think sometimes we dehumanize quote poverty um, 
and feel like we have some kind of ownership of um, people's lives. But the truth is that people who are poor are just people. And there's a lots of kinds of poverty. And um, in the same way that somebody coming from the outside asking all kinds of questions about the substance of my living and where I go to the bathroom and things like that feels invasive, I think um, my asking of those questions was invasive. So what I did was I edited edited out a good bit of that. And I'm glad that I have come around to the point where I feel like I understand um, this new thing that I didn't understand before, which was divorce from relationships. Nobody owes me their story. Kristen had earned the right to be a part of people's stories because of the relationship that she had with them. But my relationship with Kristen is not enough for me to come in asking all kinds of nosy, nosy questions. This is Kristen's story, and I hope that you experience a lot from it and enjoy it and love her because she's really, really lovable. And learn something from it. Um, but just know there, there, are some st- there are some things that I left in, but then there are other things that I intentionally took out. And I feel like it kind of strikes a balance to my original intent and what I have learned since then and um, so I hope that you receive this maybe with the invitation to do your own thinking on that idea also enjoy getting to know my friend Kristen Bacher Kristen Bacher to the podcast. Um, you are actually you. my very f- first person being interviewed. This probably won't air first, but you're my very first one. Well, I'm honored. Very I'm glad honored. you're here. Yeah. Okay, so Kristen, you and I met. Did we meet the f- first? No, we did not meet the first time I went to the international church. You wouldn't know that because you weren't there. <laughs> it was at Christmas time. Yeah, I remember people telling me about this amazing pastor, Katie, and um, I needed to meet her. And Yeah, I think you were playing, you were playing your guitar Okay. at international church, maybe after the new year when mm-hmm. we first met. Okay. So what I would like you to do first is just Tell us what you're doing in Sierra Leone. Um, so how, how long have you been here? What sort of work do you do? All right, so I've been in Sierra Leone five years now, and I'm working with an organization called Word Made Flush, which is an ecumenical community that um, has a mission statement of serving Jesus among the most vulnerable of the world's poor. So currently, I'm the only expat working with nine other Sierra Leoneans. Um, and we're focusing our work in Bay, which is one of the larger slums here in Freetown. And we're mainly working with children and youth who are in vulnerable situations with education, with medical care, with discipleship, with mentoring, um, with some justice issues, fighting for women of sexual abuse and some trafficking cases, that type of thing. That feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot that our organization is doing. I personally am not involved in all those <laughs> roles, but um, loosely connected to, to most of those ministries. So what specifically do you do then? So I'm a nurse, so most of the medical care that's provided kind of passes through me, and I help with a lot of referrals to healthcare systems. I also help in the Bay Health Center once a week, and then I love education, so I've been pretty connected to our tutoring program in the afternoons with 
kids that either aren't going to school or going to very poor schools. Um, I'm also on the community care team, which looks after the health of the community, which is very important in long-term ministry. So we plan retreats, we do one-on-one -on -one counseling and meeting with staff and try to enforce Sabbath and <laughs> some good measures of self-care. So. so can you describe Crew Bay for us? Crew Bay is... Um, you could probably Google it and you'd find an image which would probably say a lot more than a thousand words. But it's a community of around 20,000 people living in an area that's a, a low floodplain. And so it's really prone to flooding. The houses are really compact, so it's almost like a maze of houses. Um, there's very poor sanitation um, as far as um, waste facilities, that kind of thing. And that's true in most of Sierra Leone and certainly Freetown. Yes, yes. But it seems like Crew Bay gets the brunt of it. Mm -hmm. And f for a while, much of the garbage and trash from the rest of the city is thrown into the gutters and then it ends up in Crew Bay. So it becomes the town dump in some ways. And um, yeah, most of the houses are tin shacks. There's quite a few cement houses as well. But yeah, a thriving community with a lot of, um, a lot of people, a lot of children, and a lot of life and fun as well. And animals too. Yes, and pigs and chickens. And <laughs> I was gonna say dogs. Pigs yeah. and chickens too. Yes. Do you, get, you get a few goats down there, or is that really There's more? There's a few. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like goats are kind of a luxury. Maybe. Yeah, there's some some people connected with some ceremony things that would keep goats. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'm interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so you've been working in Crew Bay for five years, mm -hmm. but let's talk uh, a little bit about what brought you then to Sierra Leone. Like, I, I kind of want to know what about your life brought you to this place? Because, I mean, I'll just give a spoiler. Like, you came here not just to work with Crew Bay, but actually to, to live inside Crew Bay um, and, and actually be community in, in the slum, um, which I just think is remarkable. I'm wondering what brought you to that. Because not, I'm wondering if it was like a, I'm just going to do this, it's happening, or if there was like a slow progression to, um, from, you know, a nice girl from the south to living in the slums of Sierra Leone. Yeah, so it's kind of a long story of how God was working on me and bringing me to this point. That's okay, we want to hear it. You want to hear it. I think I'll maybe do some of the highlights. In 2009, my mother was struck by lightning and died at 50 years of age. Wow. And I think that event in my life really impacted me with a desire to have a life of meaning and impact. In my mother's short time, she just blessed so many people, and I saw a life well lived. And and how um, old were you? I was 26 wow. at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that event um, really impacted me. And even at my mom's funeral, I, I gave a speech on don't waste her death, mm -hmm. um, kind of a tagline from John Piper's don't waste your life, but really wanting that not to be in vain and wanting my mom's death to somehow have meaning. So I was, I had recently graduated from nursing school 
and was earning a lot of money that I actually didn't need because I was living at home with my father during that time to help with the transition mm. um, of my mother's death. And so I was just sitting there making a lot of money and not quite sure exactly how to use that money for the kingdom. And my oldest brother um, in college was really, really um, inspired by this idea of transforming neighborhoods. And instead of running from places of pain, to actually go there and join them and be part of the change in, in neighborhood. So I still live in the pretty racially divided South. Mm-hmm. So my brother um, decided to move to the other side of town. It's one of the only white people living over there and, um, and just joining their community and, and not being one of those people that runs away from those types of situations. And that really inspired me and challenged me. It was not easy for them. It was difficult. They got robbed quite a few times. And um, eventually, they really started having an inroad with the kids and the children. And they started a ministry through that and started working with the children in that neighborhood. And I saw what an impact you can have while living with people um, in their situations and joining them. It's very different, I think, than going there for a ministry and then coming back. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so through that, I did a lot of reading on racial reconciliation, neighborhood transformation, some of those ideas. And through that reading, I became a lot more aware of issues of global poverty, which honestly, I was quite naive and didn't really realize what was going on in most of the world. And one of the books I was reading, um, The New Friars, mentioned an organization called Word Made Flesh. I don't even really remember too much about the book or whether it made too much of an impact, but they talked about organizations that were living incarnationally with the poor. And by incarnationally, you mean? Mean joining the people where they are and moving into the neighborhoods. Right. Um, Okay. So I looked at Word Made Flesh online, and they looked really good online, and I um, could really identify with some of their values, like simplicity and living amongst the poor, and and then also just that calling to serve um, with the poor and just a high value they placed on the poor and how how much God values the poor. And so anyways, I started watching their websites and kept watching for a while. And yeah, eventually I was um, ready to take the leap to come to Sierra Leone. Maybe a further backstory (laughs) was when I was 12, I, I talked about going to, maybe I should say when I was seven, I always thought I would be a missionary one day to Africa. Wow. But then when I was 12, there was a um, magazine that I watched that was talking about the war in Sierra Leone, and there was this baby that had her arm cut off. Mm. And for some reason, that made a really big impact on me. And from the time I was 12, I always said, well, I'm going to Sierra Leone. Wow. That dream really died over the years, and I was not going to live in Africa. (laughs) And so, um, so anyways, when I was checking out their website, and in this phase of really wanting to live with purpose and really wanting to make an impact with my life. 
saw that they were also in Sierra Leone and it just seemed like double confirmation. So I was not going to stay for long term. I was going to specifically find out how to use all my extra money oh, to, okay. to solve the issues of poverty. So, right, to fix it. Yes. Yeah, so oh, I came nice here to get to get answers and <laughs> just left with a lot more questions. But right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we a lot of times like to like the idea of like, oh I have some extra money. So here's this this certain amount number of thousands of dollars will fix the whole problem. Yes, right? yeah. It was um, <laughs> quite a simplistic view of, of what was going on. But right. So then yeah. you came for a visit. I came for a four-month internship. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. okay. And what year was that? That was 2011. All right. Um, and what was your experience? Yeah, I found a lot of life here. Um, the Word Made Flesh community meets for worship and prayer every day for an hour, and I just really enjoyed the sense of community mm -hmm. and working together for a cause. I really was inspired by the Sierra Leoneans' faith. Yeah. And some of my core values that I really wanted to live out that are difficult to live in America, like simplicity and a more relational lifestyle. Um, some of those things were so much easier to do there. I also lived with a family, which was a really, really good experience, but it was very, very difficult, and we didn't understand much at all about the culture and made a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. and caused some big blow-ups, and it became very confusing. And um, yeah, at the end of my time, it was a good experience, but I was like, I don't understand this place, and <laughs> I will just cause more problems if I come, so. <laughs> it is a little bit true that you realize, like, once you actually take the leap, you realize how much you do have to learn and how mm -hmm. much you don't know yeah. and I find I've been here eight months now and I find that um consistently I'm like oh I messed that one up you know <laughs> and I'll learn something and be like oh right five months ago when I did that thing I shouldn't have done that thing yeah <laughs> so it's exactly just like one thing after another after five years I'm still doing that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you like to think that like at some point you'll get to the other side of that, but yeah. I'm not I'm not totally sure that you do. Yeah, I think when you're raised with a completely different way of viewing the world, it's hard to realize that you're seeing things so differently even though you right. can talk and right. feel like you're seeing it the same way. Yeah, like it's it's embedded in a way that you don't mm -hmm. even really recognize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that's in you is embedded and you don't recognize that in you, but also their stuff's embedded and you certainly don't recognize it in them. Yes. And then yeah. they don't recognize your thing in you. It's mm -hmm. really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so you went back after four months and then, mm -hmm. and then what? Yeah, then I went back to my job making more money that I didn't need. And yeah, I didn't want to just keep unsimplifying my life and buying more things. Mm -hmm. I really didn't feel that was the impact God was calling me to have. I think I was maybe resisting the call to come for a while. And mm -hmm. um, it was a really big commitment for me to commit to three years. Word Made Flesh asks you to commit for three years when you come on staff. Oh, I didn't realize that. And It is a big commitment. Every... Um, I think up until that point, I had changed jobs every year. I love trying new things, and my resume looked terrible. Like, I had a, a, something new that I was doing every year, and, like, tying into something for three years was <laughs> really difficult for me. Mm. But there was a missionary here that was sending me 
letters occasionally in a very forceful way of <laughs> why are you in America? They do not need you there and you were so good with the Sierra Leoneans and, and I think you're really, really gifted and would fit well with the community and yeah, basically why are you over there? <laughs> Who was that? Um, Jan Sassenberg. Oh, okay, okay. Different yeah. missionary than yeah. the one that I know. Yeah. All right. She's not quite that forceful. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so how long were you home then? I was home for two years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. A good while. And then finally in 2013, I actually, I actually got them to change the rule for me for mm. a two-year commitment. Mm. So anyways, here I am five years later, but right. that, was, that was what helped me <laughs> make, make the jump. That's awesome. Yeah. So at that, so, okay, when you were here the first time, you, li- you said you lived with a family. You mm-hmm. lived with the family in Bay. Or, no, I okay. lived with a different family. Okay. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. when you came here, this kind of for for the longer stay, mm-hmm. what was your um, plan in terms of your living situation? Was it to just jump right in? It was probably a bit idealistic and naive, but I did want to really join the people. I think it really, really jived with my desire to live simply and to not be coming to Crew Bay and my car and not understanding what's going on and and where they're at. So we have a long-term presence in one of the homes near Crew Bay. It's actually a bit on the outskirts of Crew Bay, where a former Sierra Leonean lived for years, and then one of our other missionaries lived there for a while, and he had just moved, and so that room was open. And yeah, so I was excited to to try it and to, to join the life there near Crew Bay. Awesome. Okay, so I want to know about several things. I want to know specifically about like the day-to-day of your life in Crew Bay. And then I also want to um, hear something of um, the people in Crew Bay, like your community, mm-hmm. um, and, and not just what they struggle with, but also, uh, I mean, some of the day-to-day stuff for them too, like how do they make a living, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also just something of, of what you learned from living with them about them. That's a lot of questions. So I want you to start. Day to day. Day to day, yeah. (laughs) All right, so day to day life. I would get up in the morning and there was no running water, so we would just fill up um, like five gallon jugs with water. And so I would turn some water and. Where'd you get the water? Um, the mother of the house where I was staying, she would get the water, which was a really big gift. In the beginning, I really wanted to work and join, and in the end, I was very grateful because mm-hmm. sometimes the pump wouldn't open till 2 or 3 in the morning mm-hmm. to get water. So um, she would get me the water. But I did pride myself on managing water very well. I could <laughs> survive on very low. Right, because you're actually like, you're using, the, people are using their own muscles. Yes. And to go and get water. And mm-hmm. the, the water is not always promised. Right. Right. Like right. you don't, mm-hmm. there may be days where there's just not water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then I'd go to the neighbor's house next door to take a shower, which would be a bucket bath with cold water. Yeah, then I'd have some time with God, and then I'd go to work. Mm-hmm. 
and which, you walk there. Yeah, which would be crossing through Crew Bay, and Sierra Leonean culture is extremely friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> some, I <laughs> think National Geographic voted, or BBC voted, um, Sierra Leone the friendliest country in West Africa. Oh, all right. So you have to you have to greet everybody on your way to work. So that takes a little while, especially the longer you're there and the more you get to know people along your way to work. So I would make little friends along the way, and so you'd have to talk to everybody on your way to work, which which is part of the culture and it's really fun and something I think I will miss if I'm not here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I'd be at work and then come home and do that same walk through Crew Bay. And yeah, in the evenings, there were a lot of kids around. Sometimes we'd read stories. Sometimes they'd tell stories. They love to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd help them with homework. And sometimes I'd just stay and, and chat with the, the family that I lived with. Um, they were a lot of, they were a really neat family to stay with. And I was really blessed. That kind of life is uh, like highly communal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, are you an introvert, extrovert? Um, I'm an introvert, yeah. Okay. Um, that's what I thought. So, like, how did that go? The family I stayed with, I, I think, might be the only introverts I've ever met in Sierra Leone, <laughs> which was quite a blessing, actually. They didn't have people over very often, and if I ever wanted to be alone, I could go in my room and close my door, whereas... The other family I stayed with, if you went to your room and closed the door, they thought something was wrong and like, come be with the family. And mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, um, they gave me space. Um, so that was really nice. But uh, I think I've become a little more extroverted as, as time goes on. Sierra Leone rubs off on you, Yeah, <laughs> I think, for sure. And when you came, you were single. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, how did that go? I, f- I find that I get a, a lot of attention, and I would imagine that, that living in, inside Crew Bay, mm-hmm. you got a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, and especially, pe- especially people knowing that you are a single person. Yes. Um, so how'd that go for you? <laughs> yeah. In some ways, I think Sierra Leone is a wonderful place to be single because it's so communal. I don't think you feel as lonely as you do in the States and families are together. Single people are together. Um, yeah, it's not, unless you have kids, you can't join this club or you can't be here unless you're married. Um, and there were quite a large group of single missionary women around. So my social life actually was a lot more active than it was in the U S so my experience of Crew Bay, I, I did some walking through there. I'm trying to, like, paint a bigger picture. And hopefully I'll be able to put some actual pictures online um, for people on my website, um, which is postmodernmissionary.com, um, for people to, to come and see. But, um, but, like, it really is truly a maze. Like, it's between, like, two, it's like a neighborhood or between two main streets, right? And then you just kind of maze your way through. Um, so, and you kind of have to be sure-footed or light-footed, maybe. Did you ever, like, fall or anything like that? Oh, I did have one time that was quite funny. On the way to work, there were these steps that I would go down on the way to work, and um, the kids in the program... um, we're quite well known in Crew Bay, and so they often mm-hmm. say Ali Ali. That's what they call our program, Ali Ali. So I was coming down the steps, and there's this crowd of about 20 kids that are just like Ali Ali, Ali Ali, so excited to see me. And I hit this um, piece of mud or something, mm-hmm. and I just slip and fall down royally. And you could hear their voices Ali Ali, 
Ali, Ali, Ali, Ali. And they just, <laughs> just get quiet. Yeah, they just got <laughs> horrified that the white lady fell down. But <laughs> but it was really funny. I, I was laughing, and then I saw all, all the neighbors around were laughing, too. Yeah, so it's good. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So, okay, you had no running water, and then what was the electricity situation? Do you get any electricity in Crew Bay? Yeah, the electricity was quite good really? in Crew Bay. Yeah. That's great. It, it was pretty much 24-7, so I had a fan and had That lights. is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I think we were on a, the same stream connected with um, some dignitary, so... Oh, wow. So we had constant power. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> good for you guys. Tell me about the people in Crew Bay. Like, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have an idea about what we would call the poor and people who live in slums and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But like when it actually comes down to it, don't actually have a whole lot of personal experience, which mm-hmm. in my opinion is part of um, why the church sometimes is so disconnected um, from the gospel because we don't actually know each other, which mm-hmm. is a real problem. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. easy to just get into your own social. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I'm preaching now, but it's a thing um, <laughs> for me. And, and I mean, it's, it's been part of my own personal, like spiritual journey is recognizing when the, the mm-hmm. times when I really don't have relationships with people who are different than me. So anyway, all that to say, I'm wondering, um, what expectation you had coming in about them mm-hmm. and whether or not those expectations held or if they surprised you and kind of what you've learned about people, the kind of people who live in slums. So... I think I just want to affirm what you said. I think it's very important that we're in relationship with people who are poor. Um, and we're talking materially poor. Like, there's a lot of definitions yeah, of poverty. There, there are. There's relational poverty and, yeah, all kinds of poverty. Um, but this is mainly materially poor that we're talking about. I like... I think sometimes it can be easy to be really negative towards the poor and to paint negative pictures. And I think they really changed my expectations. Mm -hmm. I probably didn't have an accurate perception of what people in poverty may be like, but I found them extremely generous, more generous than people that I've ever met in the West. Um, The small that they have, they would share their meal with me. They would give me half of their candy if they were a kid. I I mean, whatever they had, they were extremely generous, Um, very resilient and hardworking. Yeah, they worked very hard for a very little profit. Um, yeah, selling and the market from sun up till sundown, or um, just incredible hard workers and really, really fun loving. They laughed so much. Um, mm-hmm. And the jokes were just going on all the time. And I think that surprised me. I think I expected to find more of the depressed, lonely, isolated culture that I came from. Mm. But I think um, I was quite surprised to see that they were quite happy, some of them. Some of them are really struggling, and it's very, very difficult to live. And um, so many opportunities are denied them. And so um, there are people whose lives are as miserable as I could paint them. But at the same time, it wasn't as miserable as I was expecting. I right. think I found so much life and, and vitality there. Mm-hmm. And sort of going back to, I think the generosity is the thing that really strikes me. Um, like, like, for example, um, 
I was getting my car. My I do have a truck. I don't live as simply as um, as as people who make the commitments that you have. But um, so I'm not going to rationalize that right now. I really <laughs> want to, but I'm not going to. Um, so um, I was getting my truck fixed, and um, my driver Navo. There's a hundred stories that I have like this, but this is the one that comes to mind. There was a guy who went and got that we have packets of water here, and you get them cold and you drink them quick. So he got two bags. Um, one of the guys who was a mechanic, and um, Novel like reached over to him and was and asked him for one of them. And he he I don't think he even looked at Novel. He just handed it over. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Novel, do you know that guy? <laughs> and they're like, No, they don't know each other. Um, but there is like a certain expectation that um, we just give to each other, mm-hmm. and it's not inappropriate to ask because um, they'll say no if they don't want to. Number one, and number two, because like. If Nava was the one who had the two and somebody else came up to him and asked for it, he would have given it in mm-hmm. a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, and, and that feels like permeated in the culture here. So I do wonder though, like, what do you make of that generosity? Like, wh- why do you think that they are so generous? I, I think part of it is just the culture. It's um, probably one of their highest values is being generous and sharing. I think it's also a bit of a banking system. If you don't have a bank account, if you help this person today, tomorrow when you're in need, they'll probably share their food with you. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a way of investing to get some returns later um, when you have need. Yeah, and I think in some ways, like, we in the United States would think, well, that sounds like you're using each other, but that's not really the way they think about it at all. No, no, it's just part of friendship and part of life together. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that you would invest in in a relationship Mm -hmm. because you recognize that you have Mm -hmm. ways of helping each other. And I think there's a lot less of a sense of personal property. Mine is yours and yours is mine. So if I have two, of course I'd give you one. Sometimes if I have one, of course I'd give you one. Right. Um, It's ours. It's not really just mine. Oh, it's Um, so beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. That rubs up against me all the time. People are sitting on my truck when I come in or whatever, and I just want to yell at them, get off my truck. Don't don't bang my truck. Get off the truck. And I have to remind myself that's just not. Mm-hmm. And it's a much better mindset to say it's not actually yours, honey. You know? <laughs> like, um, so, so get over yourself for a second. Yeah. I just think that's so beautiful. Okay, so how do people make a living in Crew Bay? Yeah, there's quite a variety of occupations there. Um, many people are um, are selling maybe fruits or they make cookery um, to provide meals for people. There are men who make aluminum pots. They melt down um, like our Coke cans and, and form pots and sell them. Um, there's a big football industry down in Crew Bay that actually generates a lot of income. Really? There's, football as in soccer? Yeah, football as in soccer. American soccer, yeah. Yeah, and there's a couple cinemas where you can go and watch games. That's another source of income. And, and then there's the not as nice sources of income, um, stealing or prostituting yourself or selling drugs. Um, yeah, so it's kind of all there in the middle. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of um, resourcefulness. Yes, yes, very resourceful. There's a lot of tailors um, who sew clothes, um, and there's even some people who probably have an education who are working in offices in the city. So what? how does one come to live in Crew Bay? 
Um, housing is very expensive here in Sierra Leone, um, in Freetown. And so it's, yes. I think they often can squat there for free. And so if you can't find anywhere else, you can maybe claim a little plot of land and, and build up a structure. Um, a lot of people came and were displaced after the war. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that's where the majority of the people came during the war. They were just displaced, and that was one of the cheaper areas where you could build and set up a home. And from what I understand, like, Freetown used to be, I don't know, like 250,000 people, 300,000 mm -hmm. people, and now it's, like, over a million yes. and expanding. Mm -hmm. And some of that has to do with... Well, a lot of a lot of that happened during the war because so mm -hmm. many people. The war started out almost uh, near Gambia, and then came through, and finally made its way to Freetown in what, like, '96 or '98, something like that. Mm -hmm. They um, there was this. Anyway, I'll I'll, I'll <laughs> if I remember correctly, I remember in January I got a lot of messages from people because um, they commemorate the day or remember the day, not commemorate, but remember the day that the war came to Freetown. Mm -hmm. And it happened in January. I'm trying to remember if it was 96 or 98. But anyway, it drove a lot of people into the city. Mm -hmm. And now there's like, what, one point something million. Yeah. And yeah. people come, people also come, I think, for work, because they think they'll... In for this better opportunity and for education. There's not often secondary schools in the country so you have to come to Freetown or a bigger city to finish your just your high school education why is it so expensive to live here just because of the limited space yeah I think it's overcrowding overpopulation yeah yeah okay and very low employment right in the official sector yeah right it's like 70 percent unemployment or something mm -hmm. stupid yeah crazy high in young people yeah. yeah so if if they had employment opportunities perhaps it wouldn't be viewed as so expensive but because okay. most people don't have a steady source of income okay yeah so um let's change gears a little bit and talk about Carlin, who, your husband, who's actually sitting in the room. And I told him if he wanted to add things um, to what you have to say, he's welcome to come over and do that. So I can see him smiling. So now might be the time that you might want to do that. But <laughs> um, but so you came here a single person. Now you're married. Mm -hmm. um, and you have some specific plans having to do um, with your future. So I want to hear all about that. Like, how did all that come together? Tell us about your love story. We love love stories. We love love stories. So about a month after I came here to Sierra Leone, um, I met Carlin at International Bible Study. Mm -hmm. And we both had a mutual friend from my home area, and we knew the other person was coming to Sierra Leone. So we kind of met each other and were like, oh, are you this person? And so we talked and chatted a little bit. Yeah, from there we got to see each other, usually at Bible Study, and Carlin started working in the Bay Health Center. Um, so he would come and eat with Word Made Flesh after our outreach on Thursday. So we got to know each other a little bit more then. 
and Carlin had to chase me pretty hard. I wasn't <laughs> quite into it as quickly as he was, but um, he was patient and chased me for three years. Wow. <laughs> really hard. And um, yeah, and now we're married. He's very different than I would have expected to marry, but God, I think, knew much better than I um, mm-hmm. what kind of person would be good for me. So now we've been married two years dating three years in Sierra Leone and then we went to the States and got married and came back. Yeah, I've been serving here for two years. He's also a nurse and is working in healthcare. And w- you guys are not living in Crew Bay. No, we're not living in Crew Bay. So tell me, okay, tell me a little bit about that. Did you move out of Crew Bay at the time that you got married or was it? Uh, yeah, so I moved out of Crew Bay when we got married. Yeah, the time in Krube was really, really precious and valuable, and I learned so much about the culture, so much about life, um, and so much from the people. They just taught me so much. Um, but I was starting to burn out a bit. It was very difficult at times, um, and it feels a little more sustainable where we're living if we're going to keep serving long-term here to have a little more ease and comfort with daily life. But you're still living in community, though, right? You have housemates or something? Yes, we're currently sharing the building with EduNations, which is another organization that is working in education in the rural areas. So they're there during office hours, and then in the evening, the place is to ourselves. Yeah. That's an interesting setup that you guys have. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) Can you tell us about some of the challenges about your life in Crew Bay? It was quite noisy. It's a very lively community. I don't know when they sleep. <laughs> I don't either. So I get text messages at like 3 in the morning from people. I'm like, what are you not? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so um, it, the noise was hard to sleep sometimes. Um, um, and then there were lots of needs that are overwhelming. You know they're real and they're coming to you all the time saying they need to pay for this or that at school and um, just that constant barrage of trying to decide if you give to this situation or not to this one. Um, Yeah, that's also difficult. I I think eventually it became more difficult for me to find rest at home Yeah, because more and more people would drop in and come to see me. Um, So getting away on Sabbath days was really, really important for sustainability. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think just the the amount of interaction you have with people um, tests the limits of who you are mm. as a Christian. <laughs> I felt like I never was angry in America, and I never rubbed shoulders with people the wrong way, but I think... Um, you could run away quite easily and you could go back to your house. Um, but you're constantly with people and I think it just has a way of refining and showing you some of the ugly areas of yourself that tend to come out too. Mm-hmm. I used to say I was a really good person until I became a missionary. <laughs> <laughs> I <Yeah>. love that. <laughs> <laughs> and what people think is really the opposite, that the missionaries are the perfect ones. But I think it, it does show you some of who you are. Yeah. That was easier to keep hidden in America in isolation. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah, we could probably have a whole conversation about, like, how the culture in America allows us to hide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could. 
then how, like, how would you say that you've been transformed? Like, what was your aim? Okay, what was your aim in doing what you've done? And, and did it work out for you? And then also, in what ways have you changed? Mm -hmm. Honestly, there was a lot of selfish motivation, like wanting to be the hero and the savior and come in and fix brokenness. And <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting to look back over over all the different motivations and really wanting to bring Christ and to bring transformation to people. And um, we're actually, we're having a baby and planning to go back to the States for two years. So I'm in quite a reflective phase of what have I done and have I accomplished anything <laughs> in my time here. Um, but I think one of the big changes that has happened has been internally within myself. I think God has taught me a lot about, um, well, Word Made Flesh calls it being contemplative activists. Yes, we need to be active, but um, all that activism needs to come from a vital relationship with God. And so Word Made Flesh has a lot of practices that have really helped discipline and develop that space for contemplation. Um, like centering prayer and we have Lectio once a week. We have time of prayer once a week and we have a very strict Sabbath policy where one day a week you really have to rest and, um, like you can't do your shopping. Well, no, you can do your shopping. You can, it's, it's like you cannot work on that day because right. work will never be done. And so um, yeah. I think that practice of stopping and realizing that this isn't about me, this is actually God's work and he can do it even without me mm -hmm. has been a really good spiritual practice to, to stop. And so I think just having that time and space to listen to God has transformed me a lot. I think I've also, I've had a lot of doubts and questions too with the amount of suffering here, and the amount of prayers I pray that seemingly go unanswered and how people in America can pray for a sale on their shampoo and they get it, but <laughs> a little girl prays every day that they will quit beating her, or that she can eat tonight and it doesn't happen. And so dealing with how some of the framework of my Christianity only works in America. Wow. And, um, yeah, just going through quite a phase of asking lots of questions about all the suffering in the world and the place of the church and the place of myself and the ways I'm contributing to that suffering and, and then all the resources I have and opportunities I've had compared to people in the world just because of where I was born. Um, yeah, it's, it's made me go through lots of questioning. And in some ways it's been discouraging and in other ways it's been a really good process of, of coming to see the God that the Sierra Leoneans have come to know who they have ultimate trust and faith in because they don't have a bank account, because they don't have good medical care. And before I pray for my headache, I go take Tylenol. And so it's, yeah, I think um, seeing faith through their eyes has been really powerful as well. That's really beautiful. And profound, the idea that a lot of, I mean, just that line that, that the framework of, of some of your faith only works in America. Mm -hmm. and, and the truth is, if we don't in some ways get out of that or seek to be in a relationship with people who are outside of that framework it will you will never transform out of it mm -hmm. that's beautiful so um you're moving back to the states for a little while how, how do you feel about that um there's some excitement but there's a lot of sadness to leaving this place that has been home for five years and leaving what i've loved about life here like living more simply living more relationally 
even just not having to worry about my purchases because it's coming locally and Mm -hmm. not, um, yeah, just being able to buy local is so much easier here. And some of those things that are more difficult in, in America, I, I have fears about the isolation of America. I'll have a baby and be at home. And, um, it's not like Sierra Leone where you just walk out on your porch and you can go talk to somebody. Um, you have to call somebody, schedule an appointment, and it's a little harder to have these unplanned interactions with people. And so, yeah, I worry about loneliness a bit and, and purpose and, I really want to be in relationship, continue relationship with people who are in poverty, but it's much harder to do, right? to um, intentionally build those relationships in America. Right. But there, you really do have to move outside of your circle mm-hmm. uh, in very intentional ways. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be praying for you. Thanks. I, I hope that you guys do come back. Yeah. After two years. Yeah. I'll still be here. I will just barely still be here, assuming that I only do the three-year term. Okay, so, okay. But that would be great. Yeah. Okay, so your dad lives here now. Yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. So tell us that story. Yeah, so my dad came to visit me. Um, he had retired. He's a medical doctor. And he came to visit me while I was living here in Sierra Leone for six weeks. And while he was here, he met another missionary lady, and they fell in love mm-hmm. and got married. And now they're both here in Sierra Leone working. Um, She had been living in Sierra Leone for over 11 years. Wow. And so it seemed like a natural place to come back to. Um, And with his gifts, um, he can go about anywhere. So, yeah, it's really amazing to have family here. In my wildest dreams, that that wouldn't have happened. (laughs) Yeah. Like, did you, when you moved here, did you expect, you know, in three years, my dad's going to follow me? No, no, no clue. No (laughs) clue. It's amazing. You just never know what the Lord's going to bring. I know. Yeah. I did not expect to be married here. I, I mean, I knew I was committing to two years of singleness by coming to Sierra Leone, but yeah, it's God, um, changed a lot of ideas that I had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it requires that you take the leap. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. like, not only did you kind of find your life, but also your dad yeah. <laughs> found what would be the rest of his life, you know? Yeah. It was so beautiful. I love it. it you is. just never know people. You just take the leap. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so the people who are listening at home who might find you a little baffling, like, in the best of ways. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think oftentimes we think, oh, well, that person's like Mother Teresa. I'm not going to be that way. <laughs> right? I'm never going to do that or whatever. That, um, so in some ways, we hear stories stories like yours and think um and and it's like wow that's beautiful but does we turn it off for ourselves so I'm wondering um would you say that your experience has something to teach those people yeah I think we can all learn from each other I think God calls us all on different journeys but I think God does call us all to care for the poor um God does call us all to care about these issues of global poverty and the children that are dying unnecessarily, the health care that's in shambles. Um, yeah, it's like I think a it's mandate. part of bringing the kingdom of God here on mm-hmm. earth. I think we're all called to that and what that looks like, I think, can look quite different for different people. Um, but I think we in the West and in America maybe should question what we're running after and what we work so hard for. Yeah, I think at the end of our life, it's not the things that we've gathered or accumulated that that we're going to feel successful about or how far we've moved in our career. Right. Um, Like all of that is not actually going to get you where you want to go. Yeah, I think 
as we focus on relationships, I think things change a little bit sometimes. Mm. Um, okay, so this podcast is called Postmodern Missionary, and I'm wrestling with <laughs> defining that and communicating it because it's kind of a big uh, it's kind of a, a big topic, but mm-hmm. um, I do think that there are some markedly different ways that we do this kind of work. Because do you, do you consider yourself a missionary? Um, yeah, loosely. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, I think that yeah. a lot of us feel that way, where it's like, well, yeah. sure, okay. But it's because I don't want to define myself the way they used to define them, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am wondering um, uh if you think that the work is changing, and if so, what, I mean, what needs to change, what has been changing that's a good thing, mm-hmm. that sort of thing? Yeah, I think, um, I think we've seen lots of studies come out, and we've seen a lot of criticism of maybe the colonial ways we did missions in the past, and I think they were trying in the best of their knowledge, and I think this generation has maybe more knowledge and um, maybe more sensitivity and humility coming into different cultures, which I think is valuable, and I think we need to keep um, pressing towards that. Um, And I do think in some ways the work is so big that maybe we do need to think about how we're doing this and why we're doing it. Um, I think... There have been many missionaries with very good hearts who come over, but I think um, it's important to be the best you can be and the best God created you to be, and it often takes more than a good heart. It maybe takes um, some skills that you can bring to to the situations and to the issues that are there. Also, um, maybe some more humility coming in and... Um, a better understanding of the context where you're living and before you just come in and start a project without doing research, without asking the people what they need, without um, listening to the people. Um, Yeah, I think that's very, very important. And I think even even looking at best practice and best evidence right now, yeah, people with very good hearts have done really good things, and there have been people with really good hearts who've done a lot of damage, not willingly, not intentionally, but right. because they didn't understand the situation. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, John Wesley has to come back to the Methodists, um, but John Wesley had three uh, rules, um, and the first one was do good. And the second one was do no harm. Mm -hmm. And the third one was this 19th century terrible language, but attend to the ordinances of God. But essentially, it means practice your faith. Um, Keep a relationship with God, right? So, but I I really appreciate the do do good and do no harm together. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that a lot of people come and and do good, but in the process of their good, they do a lot of harm. Yeah, maybe just an example is um, orphan care. We're we're called to care for the orphans, and so um, many people with good hearts go places and start orphanages, and um, never realizing that that's actually creating a demand for orphans, and people in impoverished families are giving up their children to stay in orphanages, and then the research that comes out later and saying that institutional staying in institutions is often making it harder for them to integrate into society and um, yeah the family structure is just better and so we want to take care of orphans but sometimes we 
we just do things because we have a good heart, but maybe um, investigating a little more before we jump in and say this is how we should take care of it. Um, when things are looking, well, maybe this isn't the best route. Maybe we need to look at um, look at ways we can do it better. Right. And be willing to say we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. It is hard. It is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe it's we're not going to do it at all or I think more better. What would be better in that situation mm-hmm. would be to say, okay, if we're not going to do this, what can replace it that's more redemptive? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that, that might actually restore wholeness mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than causing more brokenness. Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, it takes a lot of humility. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so you're um, about to, like, what, like, September, right? End of September? Right. Uh, beginning of September. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Beginning of September. So we're recording this in early August, so you've got, like, a month. So as you go, like, you came in, I mean, you, this was your language. I had all this money to fix the problem, right? <laughs> um, and as you go, like, Crewbay's still there, obviously. Mm-hmm. There's still struggle. So I'm, I'm wondering how it is that you, f- you feel about... Um, as you leave, not just your work, but also the community. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I don't know if people can hear this, but my cat is literally doing jungle gym m- maneuvers underneath the table. <laughs> so if you can hear that, sorry about it. I'm going to have to lock them up in the future. Anyway, so my question is, w- looking at Crew Bay now, as you mm-hmm. go home for at, le- for at least a season, um, like how is it that you, what's your perspective now? Mm-hmm. Um... Hmm, good question. I think I have a lot of hope and discouragement for Crew Bay. I, um, I think as far as resources for myself personally, it's become easier to give money to people I'm in relationship with, and um, I know their stories, I know their situations, rather than just blindly sending things. Um, and there's people that I know and trust that are doing a great work, and so I'm very happy to continue to support the work they're doing in Crew Bay. Um, my perspective. Can you rephrase that question? Yeah, I know it's a little yeah. hard. Like, I just want to. I just want to know how you feel. I guess that's what I want to know. Like, how do you feel um, going home? Do you? Um, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Okay. Like, how do you feel going home? Mm-hmm. And looking back at Crew Bay and recognizing the situation, and then also, do you have a, like a different perspective on poverty now than you mm-hmm. did before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how do I feel? <laughs> I I feel a lot of sadness leaving. I feel some guilt because the work is very unfinished, and we need thousands more mm-hmm. to join, and so it doesn't always feel right to be leaving, and yet. Um, we do feel a peace that this is where God is calling us for the time being. So, yeah, I think that verse about praying for more workers for the harvest, I yeah. just really feel called to pray for more people willing to to work, um, expat and Sierra Leonean. Right. Yeah, all over. My perspectives on poverty have changed quite, quite, quite a bit since I've been living here. Um, Honestly, I didn't have many friends in poverty growing up, Mm. and I lived in the very Republican South where they often um, blame the poor for their situation, and I was never able to see the systems that set up the situation they were in, and I feel like um, God's just given me a much bigger understanding that about the hard work of many of the people in poverty and the lack of opportunity they had. 
and how privileged I was um, yeah. to be in a two-parent home, to be in a Christian home, to get an education, to go to a good school. Um, all those were blessings and undeserved grace that most people don't have. And um, just recognizing that where I am was because of a place of privilege and not because I worked hard. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's been a very helpful perspective yeah. for me. Yeah, I imagine that you probably saw lots of cycles of people. I mean, yes, sometimes people make bad decisions mm -hmm. and there are consequences to those bad mm -hmm. decisions, but then there are other times when it's like, you see people making all the right decisions and still their situation doesn't change. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and they're very limited. You can't go to a good school and so you can't do well in the national exams and um, they steal your money. You can't you can't fight for justice. They rape your child. You can't do anything. And so all of these things are happening. A flood comes and wipes out your whole year's earnings. Um, yeah, there's so many systems and things that are set in place that are big roadblocks to, to the opportunities that I've had. Right. Like in some ways, you know, certainly the systems I come from were set up to help me succeed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes here what we see is the systems are set up in some ways to, to, for them to fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's end in a light note. I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> now I'm feeling sad. Um, so I just want to say thanks. I think that you're a super remarkable human being. Um, and I, I really do. I think, I think that you have um, a lot of faith and probably um, more um, because you are an introvert and I know personally that you are in Enneagram 9, you probably have a lot more inside um, wisdom that that probably none of us will ever actually experience. Um, and so I just want to say thanks for sharing some of that today. You're fantastic. Oh, thank you. It's been fun to be here. Yeah, my, my first recording. I appreciate it. Um, okay, so we will just give you traveling mercies and blessings on your way. And I can't wait to meet your little bit when he or she comes. Do we know yet? Yeah, it's a he. Oh, okay. yeah. wonderful. Little boy. Awesome. Well, we'll be praying for you. And thanks so much. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you.